Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This was a historic week. The House of Representatives impeached President Donald Trump, only the third president to meet that fate. We're going to dig into what happened and what's ahead in a Senate trial in 2020. But first, PBS NewsHour and Politico hosted a Democratic presidential debate in Los Angeles Thursday night, the last Democratic debate of 2019, one of the very last before the Iowa caucuses take place in February. Seven candidates met on the stage. It was the smallest one yet. And we are going to pick apart a key moment from the debate with senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Charlie, thanks for joining us. How's Los Angeles? Hi, Scott. The weather's great. Uh, I want to move out here. It's amazing. Yeah, it was like 20-something degrees out here today. Sorry for you suckers. <laughs> All right, let's 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 get into it. Let's get into it. Uh, one of the spiciest exchanges in the debate, and, and a really notable one for three reasons we'll, we'll get into shortly, came about two-thirds of the way through. We had a pretty quiet first hour in terms of candidates going after each other, and then things really heated up in the back half, including between Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, especially in this instance as they went back and forth over their experience. It runs about a minute, and we will play that clip in its entirety. So while you can dismiss committee hearings, I think this experience works. And I have not denigrated your experience as a local official. I have been one. You know, I just think you should I'm respect sorry. our experience when you look at how you evaluate someone who can get things done. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Mayor, I'll give you a chance to respond. You actually did denigrate my experience, Senator, and it was before the break, and I was going to let it go because we got bigger fish to fry here. But you implied oh, I don't that think we have bigger fish to fry than picking a president of the United States. You're right. And before the break, you seemed to imply that my relationship to the First Amendment was a talking point, as if anyone up here has any more or less commitment to the Constitution than anybody else up here. Let me tell you about my relationship to the First Amendment. It is part of the Constitution that I raised my right hand and swore to defend with my life. That is my experience, and it may not be the same as yours, but it counts, Senator. It counts. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Senator Klobuchar, you have 45 been, seconds to respond. I certainly respect your military experience. That's not what this is about. This is about choosing a president. And we, we chose this clip because it really explains a, a lot of what happened in this debate in a few different ways and you know, outlined a lot of the big themes. And one of them, Charlie, was that Amy Klobuchar was really on the front foot on the attack all night. And, you know, sometimes it was against Buttigieg, but th there were other points where she was uh, interrupting folks uh, and kind of calling them out for f squabbling about stuff. She, she delivered a whole bunch of zingers. And she really seems like she went in knowing she has to make the most of this. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point, Scott. The feeling that we got, those of us uh, who are here, all the reporters, we were gathered in a room for a live chat just outside the hall, and we all came to the same conclusion that it was her strongest debate because what we saw from her is she was strong, she was commanding, she was authoritative, uh, she was, as you mentioned, on the front uh, foot, and there was real urgency to her performance tonight, the kind of urgency we hadn't always seen from her before. And also, you know, the one thing that I thought was really fascinating is we saw emotion from her. Uh, and uh, authentic responses to answers, whereas I think at times where she's weakest is when she does, when she relies on canny li- or canned lines or uh, sort of phony, inauthentic tricks or relies on her Senate experience. Today, she just sort of cut loose, and I think uh, that played a large role in, in really uh, giving her this, uh, you know, terrific performance. Yeah, great point. I, I'm very curious to see whether this ends up being reflected in polls, fundraising, endorsement, you know, any any of the the metrics we we track particularly I'm I'm guessing there'll be some new polling in Iowa soon. So the the second thing that this exchange really highlighted of course, the other side of this exchange is that Pete Buttigieg was facing attacks from all around in this debate. It's really the first time he's gone into a debate as a clear early state front runner doing really well in Iowa and New Hampshire. And even if you hadn't seen a single poll, you could tell Right. By, by the by the reaction of his fellow candidates on the stage. Yeah, I thought it was his uh, almost like his welcome to the NFL moment. I think we we all expected that it would be tough for for a tough night for Buttigieg because he had only sort of recently entered or broken into the top tier of candidates, meaning one of the top four leading candidates in the polls. Uh, I think he has uh, emerged as a threat to some of the the front runners. There uh, there has been a, a great deal of criticism of Buttigieg online, particularly from the pro- kinds of progressives who support uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So for lots of reasons, I think uh, there, there we were going to see a collision on the stage. And uh, I think many people thought the collision would come between uh, Buttigieg and either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. And that did happen to a certain extent. There was a clash between Elizabeth Warren and Buttigieg. But I think what will stand out is the clash between um, Amy Klobuchar and Buttigieg because uh, of the dimensions of that. It was... Um, you know, there there seemed to be a real sort of sharpness to that. And Charlie, what what do you think explains that? Are they going after the same kind of voters? Was was he just the ripest target for what Klobuchar wanted to accomplish in terms of boosting herself up? I think it was both personal and political, Scott. And the personal was pretty simple. Everything about the way that they interact with each other suggests that Amy Klobuchar can't stand him. You know, uh, I mean, sometimes that's just the way it is with politicians. They, they don't like each other and uh, and they just sort of exude that when they're on stage talking to each other. And uh, so that's part of it. They just don't, I, I don't know how he feels about her, but it's pretty clear how she feels about him. But the more important part is the political aspects of this. And the political aspects are that, um, she has to go through Pete Buttigieg to win Iowa. Amy Klobuchar must win Iowa. There is no Klobuchar campaign going forward if she can't win her neighboring state. Buttigieg is surging there, and she has to go through Buttigieg. They're fighting for the same kinds of voters. So the hour's getting late. We're talking about we're under 60 days to till the Iowa caucuses. So she had to get after Pete Buttigieg, and she did a, a, a real sharp job of it tonight. And uh, I, I thought at the end of the day, she he ended up being diminished by that exchange because she threw a lot of shade at him over, well, you know, just the last 
last office you ran for was DNC chair. I'm running for uh, the president of the United States. Uh, and, and in the way that he fought back, accusing her of denigrating him, I don't think really elevated him in any way. Yeah. And that actually leads into the third theme that I picked out from this little clip that I thought was really interesting. You know, we've seen Buttigieg take uh, a lot of attacks on the campaign trail and in this debate uh, over the last few weeks, months on his positions on health care, his fundraising practices, things like that. We have not seen candidates go after his experience, the fact that he is a relatively small town mayor running for president of the United States. And this is the first time we've really seen someone do that. Klobuchar did it. And his attempt to use his military service as a shield came off a little clumsily, it seemed like. It landed much harder than, say, Elizabeth Warren's attacks earlier in the debate on his fundraising practice, which he clearly seemed to be prepared for in a way that maybe he wasn't for for this. I, I thought you made a really uh, smart point, Scott, which was that um, he knew – one of these attacks was coming and he did a very good job of parrying it. And that is the Elizabeth Warren attack where he knew that he was going to get somebody coming from the progressive populist wing of the Democratic Party on stage, meaning either Bernie or uh, Elizabeth Warren was going to come after him for his uh, fundraising practices. And I thought he was very effective in defending himself there. But what I think he was less well prepared for was the criticism from uh, Amy Klomachar. And to me, it really diminished him, as, as I mentioned before, because I mean, when, you, when you look at the transcript afterwards and I was looking at the transcript uh, you denigrated my background you know it, it almost was like two kids fighting he accused her of denigrating his background and you know she said no you denigrated my background and you know they're going back and forth and also she hadn't denigrated his background right. she had kind of poked at him over the first amendment and he leaned on this because everyone knows it's it's effective to you know to to hold up your military service if you're running for office. But it just – it was it was weird. It was awkward. Right. And she, she – he also seemed a little bit petty uh, in, in his responses. And I thought she was really effective at turning the knife. She was so good at that in throwing shade at him by talking about how uh, you lost a, your only statewide run ever uh, and just sort of uh, lording over him the fact that she had won uh, all the rural counties in her much bigger state, uh, but he ran, lost in the only statewide race he had ever run. And then also, you know, the, the idea, while she didn't say this, making she's making the point that we're running for the biggest office in the land and you are the mayor of only the fourth largest city in Indiana. So uh, I think in that sense, she definitely tried to uh, underscore his, his lack of statewide or national experience in a way that no other rival had tried to do so far this year. Yeah. Curious if that's going to come back. Curious if a lot of stuff from this debate is going to come back over uh, the final weeks of of this uh, sprint to Iowa and and the beginning of the 2020 voting process. Charlie, thank you so much for uh, joining us to break down what happened in this this big debate. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. And for our second segment this week, we are going to switch to the the big news of the the whole week, month, year, presidency so far. Donald Trump impeached by the House of Representatives on uh, two counts. On Wednesday, uh, obstruction of Congress, abuse of power. And here to talk about it, we've got uh, Politico White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And making his Nerdcast debut, Politico's deputy Congress editor, David Kihara. Hi, David. Hello. Thank you for being here as well. 
So uh, both of you guys were were caught up in this story all Wednesday. I mean, also, you know, for the days and weeks beforehand, but but you were watching everything very closely on Wednesday. And I'm curious from that that vantage point of just being so dialed in, like just what you thought about the whole thing. Obviously, this is only the third time in history that a president has actually been impeached. It's a historic moment. I'm curious, you know, did that really like come through as you guys were watching it or was was everything about this just so baked in for weeks now that it all gets lost in that? Or I'm, I'm curious like what the experience for you guys was yesterday. I thought it was dramatic and historic, um, if only because, uh, you know, I was really focused on the White House and what Trump was doing. So I actually did not get to watch um, much of the House floor proceedings. But it was fascinating to watch the president throughout the day just in his public comments and his Twitter feed and at his campaign rally. He really showed just how consumed he is by impeachment and I think how personally he's taking all of this. And so while the White House press secretary insisted that he was in meetings and just being briefed on the House floor proceedings, you know, Trump, meanwhile, around lunch yesterday was tweeting in all caps um, he tweeted or retweeted more than 47 times yesterday. He called up uh, allies on the Hill like Senator Lindsey Graham and um, the minority whip Steve Scalise to sort of stay in touch with them about what was happening. He was really, really on top of it. He sent Kellyanne Conway, uh, one of his senior advisors, to meet with Senate Republicans to basically show them polling, which says, you know, you need to acquit the president. So it was interesting to me just to see how much this is affecting his presidency, how much he is worried about how this will affect his legacy when the White House, you know, typically tries to act like the president is upbeat, like this is a politically advantageous thing for him. And I think yesterday we saw on display uh, the extent to which he is just overwhelmed by this whole experience. David, what about your perspective from from the Congress team? You know, before the actual vote, I was pretty – I was feeling very – like it was very anticlimactic actually. It, we'd had weeks and weeks of these closed-door depositions, then open hearings. We essentially knew that it was going to be along a party vote. So it didn't seem like there was going to be any tension. But you know, I, I'm going to admit I kind of got caught up in the moment. Um, when the floor start, when the lawmakers start debating on the floor – What we are discussing today is the established fact – that the president violated the Constitution. Pontius Pilate afforded more rights to Jesus than the Democrats have afforded this president. This is a moment that you will read about in your history books. They hate this president. We do not hate President Trump. Um, and then leading up to the actual vote, it gets to be quite exciting. On this vote, the yeas are 230, the nays are 197. Article 1 is adopted. Yeah. So, David, you know, you were watching this whole long process on Wednesday that there were hours of debate on the floor leading up to the vote. Was there anything? And as you as you said, a lot of this was really baked in. Was there anything that happened in this vote that that was particularly notable or surprising? Maybe not. Maybe surprising isn't the right, the right word, but notable to you. I mean, from the Republican stand uh, side, not really, just because everybody was pretty pretty much going along with Trump, and there were no defections. Uh, on the Democratic side, we knew that Colin Peterson from Minnesota and uh, Jeff Van Drew uh, were going to defect, and they did. Uh, they both had voted against both articles of impeachment. And then there was Tulsi Gabbard, which was kind of the weird oddball thing uh, when she voted present on both of the articles. I think mean, that was clearly probably the most surprising thing. Yeah, that's that's just weird. That's just weird. And then, of course, you know, in, in terms of the how how – closely things split alongside 
party lines. Part of the reason is because we've actually seen two members of Congress leave their parties basically over this question of of impeachment. Right. Uh, Justin Amash going from a Republican to an independent and Jeff Andrew, who over the last weekend said that he would go from being a Democrat to a Republican. So, yes, I mean, clearly that was you know a very, very big moment there. Now, Nancy, as as the actual vote was taking place on Wednesday, it was this incredible, bizarre split screen moment of the House of Representatives, the House chamber and the House of Representatives on one hand, impeaching the president of the United States and President Trump at a rally uh, with his supporters revving up uh, folks in one of the swing states that he turned red in, in 2016. Can you can you take us you know, in, in into that moment a little bit as, as you were watching it? Sure. Well, it was one of the longest rallies I've ever watched. It was over two hours. You're about to hear the greatest speech you've ever heard. And it included kind of everything. So there was tons of impeachment. It doesn't really feel like we're being impeached. Trump kept yeah. coming back to impeachment. It's so much fun. They want to impeach you. They want but he was also talking about the economy and Space Force. And at one point he was talking about a pilot that looked like Tom Cruise. And honestly... They're better looking than Tom Cruise, okay? <laughs> the face is equal, maybe slightly better. The body's bigger and stronger. Plumbing came up. Yeah, plumbing came up. Sinks, showers, and toilets. The light bulb. The old light bulb, which is better. I say, why do I always look so orange? You know why? Because of the new light. They're terrible. You look terrible. It's like dishwashers. I mean, it was just remarkable, all of the different topics that he hit on and, and how much of it, particularly towards the end, was really rambling. But the way that he talked about impeachment was he really painted it as an effort for Democrats to steal the election um, from Trump that he had won it and undermine his legitimacy as a president. He warned that – And the legitimacy of the people who voted for the him. The people who voted for him, exactly. And then he really painted it as political suicide for the Democratic Party to go down this route. Um, and what was super interesting to me was at one point – he got to the rally very late. He took the stage very late because Vice President Pence, who was on the stage before him, said that he had wanted to watch the Republicans start to vote on the House. And I think this just shows you how closely he was tracking it. And then at one point during the rally, he stopped. Oh, I think we have a vote coming. And a woman from his campaign came out. He actually called her the wrong name, um, which was interesting. But um, – she came out holding a sign, a poster that they had brought along with them on Air Force One to the rally, and it showed the final vote tally of Republicans. So we got every single Republican voted for us. And the president paused when he saw that, and he seemed kind of touched, actually. And he said, oh, wow. Whoa. You know, and he was talking about how united the Republicans were, and he mentioned that vote tally to the the whole uh, arena. And I think that that was a really – that was sort of the most positive way in which he talked about impeachment, that the Republicans were sticking together. But I will say there were some pretty dark moments at the rally too. He really went after um, Representative John Dingell who died uh, within yeah. the last year and he talked about – He basically suggested that he went – he was in hell. He did suggest that he went to hell. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down. He'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up. I don't know. 
And um, and he suggested that, you know, Trump alone was completely responsible for uh, the military honors that he got, even though Dingell was a World War II veteran and was entitled to that and is buried at Arlington Cemetery. And it, it really it was an interesting moment because I think it showed how much Trump bases his campaign on grievances, but also that was interesting because it fell flat with the crowd in Michigan. Uh, you know, even mm. those, even though though those people were Republicans, you know, the Dingle family is a really well known political family in Michigan, and I don't think it was well received by the crowd. And I think Trump sort of miscalculated that, and it was an interesting moment. David, where is this going next? And by that I mean we we know the textbook answer: the House impeaches, so the Senate holds a trial. But the thing that a lot of people are talking about on Thursday was well. Is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi going to hold on to those articles of impeachment for a little while instead of sending them over to the Senate right away because of this fight that's going on about what exactly will take place in the Senate trial? David, what's going on here? Yeah, so you're right. For the Senate trial to begin, Nancy Pelosi has to send the two articles of impeachment to Mitch McConnell and the Senate. Uh, At that point, they also... Uh, she would also essentially name the impeachment managers who are essentially the Democratic lawmakers who serve as kind of the prosecutors in the trial. By withholding the articles of impeachment, it kind of delays the entire process. And now Washington is just obsessed with what is she going to do and why is she doing that? So why would Pelosi do this? And we should be clear again, we're recording this on Thursday. Maybe this changes at any moment. But for now, she is not yet sent the impeachment articles over to the Senate. And it has to do with these Democratic concerns about how Senate Republicans would organize the trial and specifically the witnesses who would testify. One thought is that she's doing it as leverage since Chuck Schumer has messaged that he essentially wants to try to bring in different witnesses like John Bolton uh, in the trial. Maybe withholding these articles would give him the upper hand in negotiations with McConnell. But at the same time, Nancy Pelosi has always tried to protect her moderates and is in their best interest to get this trial over as soon as possible. So by delaying this longer, it could possibly damage them. It is quite perplexing. At, at this point, we should probably point out like the differences between a Senate impeachment trial and what we would normally think of as a trial, right? You get, you know, in a, in a criminal trial, a civil trial, one side gets to call witnesses, the other side gets to call witnesses, everyone hears the things are going to operate under a very different set of rules in the Senate, which is a legislative body, not a court. Correct, correct. So the rules are going to be decided uh, by majority. And also, even though the senators will be jurors, you know, they will be silent throughout the entire trial. I mean, they're still senators. So there's a good chance after the Senate breaks, they're going to run out to the TVs and speak about the matter. (laughs) So, you know, it it is still uh, essentially a congressional proceeding in a sense. And so there's this fight going on between Democrats and Republicans about who's going to be the people actually involved in the trial. But how does delaying sending the articles of impeachment over, how would that increase the leverage that Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Democrats have to actually make this happen, given the majority rules nature of the Senate and the fact that the Republicans have the majority? So it would kind of essentially stall the trial proceedings. Um, It's a little confusing, though, because it's clearly something that the left wants. And if there's one thing Pelosi has done, it's protect her moderates. And clearly, it's in the best interest of the moderates to get this trial done relatively soon and quickly. So prolonging it longer just doesn't seem to make sense on that respect. Now, of course, Trump tweeted on Thursday that he wants a speedy trial. I think he wants to get this over with. So maybe that's a point of leverage to get the witnesses that Democrats want. 
on on the other hand, you know, we've seen in the past that maybe the tweets that the president sends aren't always representative of like the, the White House Counsel's Office's political strategy. So, you know, other other than that, it's hard to see at this moment just the pressure point to get these witnesses by delaying. Schumer's tried to say that you know part of the that part of his strategy is to pick off maybe three or four different moderate senators to go along with his uh, witness strategy, but. It seems quite unlikely. Well, I'm kind of curious along those lines. And Nancy, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about this too from your vantage point covering the White House. But the did did the House vote really kind of put the the final nail in the idea that any Republicans are going to cross over on the Senate side of, of this as well? We saw every single Republican in the House, every single remaining Republican, right? We mentioned Amash is now an independent vote against both articles of impeachment. Um, is the Senate – I mean is – Presume, does that carry over to the Senate or you know, are there personalities there who uh, are, are so much bigger that they, they can kind of maybe escape from the gravitational pull of, of this situation or are, you know, did, did, the, did the House vote really just confirm what we're heading for whenever the Senate gets done with its trial unless something major changes? I think the White House assumes that all the Republicans will stick together and I think that their hope is actually to pick off some moderate Democrats for support like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia who the White House is honestly always trying to pick off on this issue and that and and usually he toys with them and then sticks with the Democrats <laughs> um, to be perfectly honest. I think that what I'm watching is that there's actually disagreement not just with the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate over what the trial should look like but also um, you know, the Senate leadership and the White House. You know, President Trump for the last few weeks has been telling people that he wants to be vindicated in the Senate trial. He wants it to look great on TV. He wants there to be like a splashy legal team and witnesses called. He wants Hunter Biden up there. You know, he wants this like made for TV finale where it's splashy and, you know, the Democrats are embarrassed. Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, wants exactly the opposite. And he and Pat Cipollone, the White House's top attorney, have basically been working behind the scenes to convince Trump to totally damp down his expectations and just have a non-flashy Senate trial, you know, no witnesses over quickly. But it's been something that they have been working to cajole the president to get to that point. And I could see that erupting at some point again. David? Yeah, I, I certainly don't disagree with any of that. I mean, the strategy to pick off a couple of Democrats is is interesting. There's always Joe Manchin, but there's also Kristen Sinema who could possibly go, but that seems unlikely. And then on the on the Republican side, I mean, you've got Democrats who have talked about Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, um, a handful of others, but. Maybe expectations well. are low. Um, Lisa Murkowski, that's right. right. But it sounds like expectations are pretty low. It is. I mean, I, I hate to, to downplay anything, but it does seem like the, the acquittal is pretty hard set. I mean, certainly there's going to be a surprise given this political climate, but it does seem like he is headed for a full acquittal. So what what at this point would obviously – and that's that's kind of the ultimate goal of, of the White House and, and the president, maybe not just acquittal, but like a majority vote potentially with – with a Republican majority in the Senate as a possibility. What would Democrats like to get out of this trial given that – given Mitch McConnell's comments, given so many other Republicans' comments on this seems like it might be a foregone conclusion? Uh, I think they want to continue to uh, hurt the president in some way. Like every single day that this continues, there are still going to be headlines about both the Ukraine scandal about his ongoing impeachment. Uh, that, that can't do much good for the president 
What do you think, Nancy? I think that they want to paint him as someone who's unfit for office. And I think that, you know, impeachment is taking up such a large space in the president's brain that, yes, he is able to, yes, you know, they've come to a deal on uh, USMCA, which is a trade deal that they've long wanted to do. And and the president, that's a major legislative win for him. But the president is consumed by impeachment. And I think the Democrats sort of want to keep nudging him on the investigations, uh, in part to just show that he is unfit for office. He is his. Uh, White House is ethically challenged, all of those things. I think what is so historic about this moment is, you know, President Bill Clinton was also acquitted by the Senate, but the difference was he had already won re-election. And so we've never had a president who will go through an impeachment trial, potentially be acquitted by the Senate, and then have to face a re-election. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the point that is really hard to predict. Um, the country is so divided and the impeachment has sort of cemented that where Democrats are in favor of it, Republicans aren't. And I think it's just an open question of, okay, how do we then pivot? How is the White House going to pivot from the Senate trial, even if the president gets off, to a re-election bid with a president who remains really controversial with half of the country and who doesn't enjoy the approval rating of past presidents? Great point. Well, every time we've talked about impeachment on the Nerdcast, we've said you know a lot more to come on this story, more follow. It's actually over now. But of course, we've still got the trial to go. So we will <laughs> We will have a lot it's more. It's over for like yeah. two weeks. Well, the, <laughs> the impeachment part, this is a very technical constitutional <laughs> reading here, but the, the impeachment part is over. Still a lot more to come. Nancy, thanks so much for being on. We'll have you back soon to talk more about it. Of course. Thanks so much. And David, thank you as well. No, my pleasure. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this, the last Nerdcast episode of 2019. We'll be back with you the first week of 2020, but thank you so much for tuning in uh, all through this year to the special episodes we did this week, to all the impeachment coverage and the 2020 presidential coverage. We're really looking forward to coming right back to you in 2020 with a lot more on the presidential race and this trial and whatever else is going on. Our producers this week are Jenny Ament and Annie Reese. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next year. Next decade. Next year. Next year.